Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. And in this episode, I'll be talking about uh, Waldo, published originally in Astounding Magazine. And boy, this is about as astounding as an astounding story by Heinlein gets. Um, in August of 1942, it is. Uh, it was originally written under the name Anson McDonald. I don't know if we can pack up that name. I don't know the fate of it after the war. Uh, my hunch is he's going to publish more under his own name because he publishes fewer stories and now obviously all the novels are published under his name and he starts reprinting these old Anthony McDowell stories as Heinlein novels so I think well we'll see this might be the last we hear from Anthony McDonald but um it's a good story um in fact it is such an astounding story I think I'd have to go back to look at um Naval Lee's book but I mean if you want to have an example of a story that emulates like Everything that Highline has been doing for Astounding in the period from 39 to 42, you know, this story has it all in a way. Um, maybe not the social credit stuff that's that's in Beyond This Horizon, but isn't that also a 1942 story? So these and Anson McDonald, so those these two together kind of do, um, I think they're the peak of this uh, Highline working for Astounding. Um, period um so again this is like a basically a short novel it's the audiobook is four hours long it's you know there are novels of that length um you know i think the juveniles are not that much longer than this so um but yeah um but i'll, I'll deal with it as a short story because that's, that's that's kind of how it's published here in in astounding um so what to talk about here so uh one aspect is is we have to go back to like let there be light to have this question of like unlimited power and unlimited power unlimited free power being a boon for humanity and something that a scientist is able to sort of unlock and um in let there be light it it's basically the system we have here is what we sort of have in let there be light except here it's monetized and it there's a power company that's behind it napa north america power association or something like that uh napa i'll just call it um and they get they're they're able to basically get power from the radiant energy in um radiant kind of radioactivity from the sun which is a little similar to let there be light where the idea was you have a, a light source that can be transferred into an unlimited power source and that story which was a lyle monroe uh story it was heinlein but it was published under the name lyle monroe so that, that i actually thought was a pretty good story on this question of like patent and making technologies public domain and and, and for the public good um here you have kind of the next phase of that because um, you have this civilization being run by this background radiation from the sun being translated into power through this power company. So you have sort of a monopoly. So it's like the let their uh, the roads must roll. Sorry, the roads must roll uh, story where you have a privileged class of kind of engineers who, who have their fingers on the entire economy in a way. Here it's through energy. 
So that's an aspect that's kind of being recycled in this story. Um, and we have the breakdown of it. Now here the breakdown comes for various reasons. And it's complex technical things. And I'm not going to say I got it all. I, I, there's parts of the story where I kind of zoned out on some of the more technical aspects of what's going on here. But um, people fly broomsticks. Um, magic is kind of interesting here. And in fact, this book was, this story was really published with Magic Inc., which is a straight up magic story, even though it's got a science fiction you know, take on it, but that's got devils and demons. It's more fantasy. This is much more science fiction, but both sort of deal with magic in a way because of, it's more like the techno mage stuff you have in, in the sixth column, I suppose. Um, but here people fly around on broomsticks, which are actually just like invisible cars, but you see the axles. And the seats and the people sitting on it, so it looks like they're flying around in broomsticks, broom, on broomsticks, and it's powered by this NAPA power supply. Um, and then they start falling from the sky, and that's going to be, of course, the big crisis. Like this is the basis of our economy; something's going wrong. And the, and then in the backdrop of this is another fear that relying on this energy source is. Um, is causing people to weaken it, it's kind of is it is it the radiation that we're exposing ourselves more to that is making us physically weaker or is it like sloth i think that's not quite i mean there the, when i was hearing this conversation i was thinking both ways it's like is this just a slothful tech, tech technocratic civilization where people kind of can become like like wally like in wally um and that's why they're getting kind of fat and lazy um and less energetic um, and less like vigorous or is it somehow a product of it and that's actually discussed at some point in the in the book that theme is not carried as much as i would have liked but we do get it kind of expressed in a macro way with the character of waldo so waldo is very much a Heinlein protagonist who is like essentially um he's kind of a post-human and a transhuman at the same time so he's post-human in that he's got like super intelligence, all right? Um, but he's he's physically weak. So he's kind of a classic setup for like a supervillain almost where he's um, like, well, like what's the M. Night Shyamalan movie? Glass, right? You know, that guy. Um, physically weak, but, but a genius. Um, this character is physically weaker as well, but he's also kind of fat because he's living you know, a life of sloth uh, in a space station. So he leaves the Earth and he does his work. He's basically a consultant for tech companies. And he lives on a satellite with his dog. And he does this these commissions for huge amounts of money because he must because he has to support this life on a space station. But he's super brilliant. He can solve anything. He's like never failed to solve a problem. He's got a grievance against NAPA though because of an old lawsuit that he get, took it on the chin on. So that's part of the hesitation for NAPA to go to him, but that's his job. His job is to solve these problems for these different companies or whatever. Um, and he is this, so in a way he's post-human in that he's got the super intelligence. I, I think of Philip K. Dix, was it the big noodle character, also kind of a, an immobile blob that has super abilities. But, but Waldo is not... I mean, Big Noodle in the Philip Dick novel is more just kind of a weird blob uh, who's able to, was it to write, like stop missiles or something with his mind? Um, here is actually, he's a functioning human being. He's just like physically 
weak, so he has to live out in space. Um, and if he comes to Earth, he needs like special um, devices and things to get around or whatever. Um, but he's also sort of transhumanist. That's where the Waldos come in. They're, they're named after him. And they're essentially like mechanical extensions of himself that he can manipulate through gloves he wears. And they're like manipulable hands. So he's kind of cybernetic in that way too. And that's because he doesn't move at all. He's like like a, in a Stephen Hawking's kind of guy almost. Um, he can't even like lift a Coke. <laughs> you know, he's, he doesn't even have that ability if, without using the Waldos to do it. So he's just a, a weirdo genius living up in, in, in space, kind of the extreme example of an antisocial personality. But people have to come to him and, and, and simp for him a little bit because he is able to solve problems. Um, so the magic here uh, in this story, um, I'll come back to Waldo in a little bit. Because um, that's actually kind of well set up, the, the Waldo character, I think. Um, but the magic, before I lose that train of thought, again, unlike Magic Inc., which truly is a fantasy story where, and I talked about that when I looked at Magic Inc., which I didn't spend much time on the story, but maybe it's worth thinking about a little bit more in this context, uh, where their magic is real and it's like supernatural, but it's sort of understood so people can manipulate it and, and things. It's, I mean, obviously if, I think about this like with D&D, right? Where, where there's magic in the world. Everyone knows there's magic. At that point, is it really magic anymore? If you actually have specialists who understand how it works and can manipulate it, right? So it's 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 like magic in tech. In a technological civilization, it's going to look like magic. And in a, a magic-based civilization, it will eventually look like it will function essentially like tech. Wizards shouldn't be like wandering adventurers they should be like the guys you go to to fix it, to repair the roof, right? Or if someone is sick, right? Or maybe there's there are some people who are willing to do some more dirty deeds with their ability to magic. But yeah, most magicians would be like in manufacturing, essentially, right? Um, doing that. And it would be underst if it's understood how it works and how the powers in the universe can be harnessed to do magic. It's not really magic anymore. It's just a form of tech. I don't know. I'm sure people have thought about this and tried to justify it, but that, that's my feeling. And I, I never like how magic is done in these fantasy um, settings. I mean, Lord of the Rings is okay because magic is like something the elves have and something that's kind of a foreign thing. It's actually literally outside. It comes from the outside, right? Like, don't the, aren't the wizards kind of like outside forces there? And magic like declines. It's not integral to the rules of the universe. But anyways, that's what's going on in Magic Inc., right? Uh, and then you have like demons and devils and, and hell and all this other weird stuff going on there, which makes it more of a straight up fantasy novel. But it's not a pure fantasy novel in the sense that fantasy is where the supernatural kind of like horror, supernatural infects our lives, right? Where, where it interjects into our lives in a way, in a way that's disrupting and unnerving, right? That's why Stephen King's stories even when their fantasy are so compelling because we have normal characters in our world who experience something supernatural for a brief moment. Right. Um, anyway, then this story, 
they call it magic, but essentially it's like a tech that seems to extend out of the way energy is harnessed in this society, right? And the broomsticks really are mechanical devices. They're not literally magical broomsticks, except they're where their power comes from. Um, so the heart of this technology is these things called the decalbs, um, and they are the things that's failing. And so that's why they have to, have to go to Waldo up in space. And he's not happy with NAPA. But our, our main characters, Stevens and Grimes, these are like engineers for NAPA. They talk with him and eventually he agrees to take the case. Um, but but Grimes, who is this, he's, he's the tech He's, he thinks tech is suspicious, right? He thinks humans are being weakened by this, by this use of essentially magic, right? The radiant power of the sun or whatever. And he's like, Waldo, can you figure this out too? And, and that ultimately leads Waldo down a chain of evidence that lets him kind of figure out uh, the solution to the problem of the failing to calves and the, and the failure of magic in, in the world. And long story short, and there's this other character, Rambo, who's like, the research head for, for Napa, he kind of gets a little unhinged, uh, seduced by the magic that's been unleashed. But that's, that's kind of what's happening is like the magic has been sort of unleashed and it comes, the, the solution comes kind of in a re-imposition of human control over that magic. And Waldo is fully capable of figuring out how to do that. Um, so he eventually does figure it out. And it involves really gravitating to like a parallel universe and laying claim to that energy. And that is going to give them the power to like, like to essentially manipulate their. Well, essentially, it's like they grab a new power source from another parallel universe. That's what it, what it, how it seems, and that's kind of interesting because now this new energy source has the potential, like we have in Let There Be Light, to be sort of public domain. So the argument being, again, that the power, the basic fundamental foundation of the civilization should be accessible to everyone like in the roads must roll to the roads and this novel it's like the magic or the basically the energy that governs the technology of of the era and um beyond this horizon it's it's basically the social credit so the idea in in Heinlein's works here is that there there is something we're entitled to for just being a part of the civilization which is fundamentally a socialist argument it seems to me and very, it's very libertarian in a positive way in that, like, to be totally free, we need to have access. We can't just, it's not just government laying off our backs. We need to have access to resources or education or, or something fundamental that allows us to prosper. Um, now, this story does get a little weird and metaphysical towards the end after Waldo solves his problem, because what seems to be happening is our minds exist both in this world in a physical sense and in this other world in a mental sense, right? But it's not, there's actually a, a philosophic argument being made here that like we make the rules through like a force of will of how our universe is governed. And this ultimately goes a long way of explaining kind of the magical system they have. That's, so the, the, the thought experiment here is like maybe in the Middle Ages, heavier objects really did fall faster than lighter objects until Galileo decided that should not be. 
and he did his experiment. And then he was able to convince others and teach them that, and then that becomes manifest. So science is a reflection of our wills and not really a reflection of, of an accurate depiction of the world around us, right? Which I think it's kind of very compelling. It's it's not quite like a, a, a the, the, the Kuhn argument of scientific revolutions, but, but it's akin to it in a way. It's like we, our science is a reflection of our own values and our, and our own ideas. We saw this like in universe, of course, too, where they took these old scientific texts and made it into a religion, right? This idea that they're like, how we interpret the universe is not from purely objective places. It comes from our core beliefs about things. So when when someone in the Middle Ages thought the Earth was the center of the universe, right, and that was reflected in their scientific theories, there's, that's like a truth that's really lived, right? And that maybe not a physical truth, but it's sort of irrelevant for anyone's actual lives, right? From, you know, to in any important degree, the Earth was the center of the universe in the Middle Ages. Saying otherwise was kind of irrelevant. The scientific revolution forced people to think about the world differently, and now we do think about the world differently, and and that's had all sorts of consequences. But it's really in the realm of the mind that it matters, right? And so Waldo gets into his head that that it's really a mind over matter kind of situation. And he realizes he can kind of harness the power from this other world. This is after he kind of solves the problem and does his commission and gets paid for it. He has this belief that he can sort of extract energy from this other world. And he uses it to slowly increase his strength until such a point that he can actually come down to Earth. And dwell without any machinery propping him up, without the Waldos. Right now, there's like a frame story in this novel where we start out with seeing a character dance and do all these like elaborate um, acrobatics with his dancing. And at the end, it, we're, we're, we're told that that was actually Waldo after he came back to Earth and liberated himself from his physical constraints. So that's why I said this is such an astounding story in a sense, like from astounding of this era, from this Campbell era, because Campbell was really big into this kind of mind over matter stuff right of course he's of course influential in like that move to dianetics uh, astounding was all part of that early on with hubbard and and heinlein was adjacent and campbell especially um and that you have these characters who are somehow post-human just because of their capacity their intellectual capacity their ability their will or or whatever um so that's that 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 frame story is, is rather fascinating, I think. But and he's like the great Waldo and he has his own kind of troupe and he's, he retires from being a scientist and he becomes a performer and an actor. and He remakes himself entirely, which is kind of an inspirational story, actually. The, the, what happens to Waldo is that, you know, he's a genius. He's a cliched kind of uh, unattractive um, nerd who can't get out of his bed. He's physically deformed. Yes, he has what's, um, you know, like, like his muscle. He's got like kind of like a muscular dystrophy kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure. Like his, like he's got the lazy eye and uh, and all that. Like he, it, it's it's. He his mind's fine, but his physic physical capacity is not not there. 
So all they can do is use his mind, and he really excels at that, and he's smarter than any other human around. And he's able to become rich and live and, and you know, be better than all the normies. Ultimately. But what he really wants is to be physical, right? That's not really what he wants. He's not entirely happy with that situation. He, he pretends to be. He reports to be, like, proud of his supremacy over the rest of humanity. Comparing him, you know, the rest of humanity to chimps. Like, if, if he's a human, they're chimps. Or, he, you know, or he is as advanced from humanity as, as we are from chimps, right? Even though we're physically weaker than chimpanzees, we, we, we can dominate them because we have the, the, the mental capacity. But at the end of the day, he just wants to be a normal human, right? And, and so that's a, a nice, satisfying end of, for the story. Um, so is there much more to say about the story? I thought I'd have more to say, but I, I've kind of been zipping through a lot of what's in the story anyways. Um, I do think it, it's a great example of, of where Campbell and Astounding Magazine is at kind of at the end of the Heinlein era. Um, I don't know how many stories Heinlein's going to publish with Astounding after the war. I know it's mostly novels from that point on. Um, but there, there are still stories, especially in 1947. There's a whole bunch of them. We'll see how many of those get, where they're where they published when we get to them. But... I think this is kind of a good capstone almost this and beyond this horizon together sort of i think end a phase of of heinlein's career of course after this point he goes off to the to be a civilian officer or whatever in the military uh working in his lab working on future tech not achieving anything and then he comes back and gets his commission to work on the juveniles and that's what he's going to uh spend much of the late 40s and 50s doing and so we're at an exciting moment uh, in this podcast. Um, the next, uh, well, we have two more episodes before we get to Rocket Ship Galileo. Um, and that's uh, Free Man in a Bathroom of Her Own. These were uh, both written by Heinlein in 46, but not published until later. Free Man was published in a collection in 1966, and Bathroom of Her Own was not published until 1980. So these are going to be... Uh, Stories we're not going to take too seriously because they, they are sort of asterixes uh, to his career. They weren't things he published at the time because maybe didn't feel they're that good. But they, they did end up in print in his lifetime. So we'll, we'll, we'll take them ser as seriously as we can. I haven't read them yet, um, but we will. And then we'll, after that, get to Rocketship Galileo. So in about a week or so, we will be talking about Rocketship Galileo, um, which I recently read, but I will read it again. And, and give me my thoughts on it. I'll probably do two episodes on it. Um, I think it's a, a fun little novel. Um, it's Nazis on the Moon. What, what's not to like? Highlands always got kind of fun, uh, even when he's not his best. And I haven't read all the juveniles yet. I've heard people say that's the one that's the worst of his juveniles. But I don't know. I, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, it's a good start because it's a story about people going to the moon, right? And, you know. It's it's a nice launching pad for for Heinlein's like novel career. Even though he's written plenty of novels by this point, these are these a lot of these stories basically essentially are novels, um, especially the serial published ones. 
But anyways, um, I guess that's it for now. So thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with, I guess we'll do a, a bathroom of our own. No, no, we'll do Freeman first. That was published earlier. We'll do that first. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. <laughs>